0: This is the Responsible Sports Podcast, presented by Liberty Mutual. Episode number 13, Phil Jackson. Responsible Sports is a program dedicated to supporting coaches and parents who help our children succeed on and off the field. Each episode, our host, Jim Thompson, Executive Director of Positive Coaching Alliance, will be joined by some of the most influential players and coaches to share their thoughts and experiences with responsible coaching and responsible sports parenting. In this episode, Jim talks with NBA coaching great and Positive Coaching Alliance national spokesperson Phil Jackson.
1: Building a community, I think, is probably the one thing that I value more than anything else as a coach. I I think that uh, when the players bond and play together as a unit, they become... Almost unbeatable in, in many ways. And I think that's the key that, that makes the difference between um, the championships. But more than anything else, then it's about the fact that they want to be there. Phil Jackson shares his
0: insights on how to build community within a team and how to find voice for star players while encouraging role players to embrace their vital place. Phil also shares his philosophy on balancing talent versus effort, the role of rivalries to motivate teams and how to extend the lessons of sports beyond the court.
2: So I'm very excited today to to interview Phil Jackson. Phil needs no introduction to any sports fan, but um, I'm going to give him one anyway. Phil will enter this season, uh, the 2010-2011 NBA season, in the pursuit of his 12th championship as an NBA coach. If he succeeds, he will have completed four three-peats of back-to-back-to-back NBA championships. Over the course of these championships, he's coached such superstars as Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Shaquille O'Neal, and Kobe Bryant. Phil has won more NBA championships than any other coach in the history of the NBA. He also played on an NBA championship team for the New York Knicks. In all his pursuits, including his service as national spokesperson for PCA, Positive Coaching Alliance, Phil brings a depth of philosophy and personal respect for his players that sets an example for for responsible coaches. Phil, thanks for joining us.
1: My pleasure, Jim.
2: So, Phil, um, both with the Bulls and the Lakers, you've created teams out of uncommonly strong personalities. You've got overtly fierce competitors such as Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant, and then you've mixed in some personalities such as Dennis Rodman and Ron Artest. What are some of the keys to your ability to blend those personalities into a really strong functioning team?
1: Well, I think that more than anything else, it is um, the understanding that everybody has a voice. And that uh, in that regard, I I like to have my staff members uh, be a vital part I have some colleagues in the NBA that uh, they say when we step on the court or when we're in the locker room, I'm the only one that speaks, and I want it just to be one voice. But um, for myself, the way it works best for me is I I think that um, I like to have. um, I once um, read a study on um, NASA that when there was an emergency in the cockpit or in a space shuttle, that they figured out that rather than having one person unilaterally giving instructions, it was better for uh, the multitude or a variety of voices to pitch in in an emergency situation of short time. And I kind of bought into that idea. I mean, that's not what changed my mind. I think I believed in it before. But I I thought that, you know, it's really important. So as a result, um, we have a number of situations where my coaching staff will take the lead and will, you know, have a practice part that they lead in in a, a drill segment that they have in practice, and ultimately, you know, those coaches all have teams that they scout, and most of them have uh, seven or eight teams that they watch during the course of the year, and those teams are who they're responsible for. So when we face the opponent, uh, they are the voice of uh, you know who this team is and how we get going. And I think that kind of gives the players an understanding that there's going to be more than just one voice on the team that talks. And a lot of times I'll ask um, for somebody who's – voice is rarely heard. Maybe a person who's 11th or 12th man on the floor to ask an opinion of them um, during the course of uh, maybe a video session to see what their response is and also to give them a voice to be heard also because I think that um, sometimes the role players are just as involved, if not more so, than sometimes the stars. And I think that gives uh, players an idea that everybody's important. Even the people with the strongest will and uh, the strongest personality on the team. Now, there's no doubt that um, um, this is a an event that I think comes out of my experience with Red Holzman as a coach. Red Holzman with the Knicks used to um, spend the first, you know, 30 seconds of our timeout talking about the defense. This is what we're doing wrong on defense. This is where we have to step up defensively. We have to put more pressure on the ball, the screen, whatever. And then at the, the huddle, he'd say, okay, what do you guys want to run? <laughs> I used to ask Red about that, and he'd say, I believe the players that are on the floor have as much knowledge, perhaps, as I have, and I want to hear from them as to what their impression is as what has to happen on the floor. So I like that idea. And I do that occasionally, but a lot of times I will also give uh, an offensive, you know, instructions for what I think is the next best thing to run. But there are times I'll also ask for input from the team, and I think those things give players the idea that that we're in this together. This is a team effort, and I respect their voice, and they and likewise have to respect mine.
2: What What strikes me about it, you know, we started. Out, I started out asking you about the stars, but you know the the role players often can make, be the difference between winning a game or not or even winning a championship and how everybody it seems like people are much more committed to a, an organization if they feel they have a voice in it and it seems like you you've, you've uh, more than almost any coach I can think of you get more out of your role players than than most NBA coaches I think
1: I I would really like that to be true I I think that um Role players are really the important aspect of winning a championship. Everybody has to have really good players to get to championships or get to um, positions where they can win a championship. But it's that little extra, who else is involved and who else has the authority or the comforts, confidence to, to step in and play a role. Um, and it goes back to John Paxing making a jump shot in the, the third year of a, a three peat run in ninety two and Steve Kerr you know hitting a jump shot to win a championship and you know the second uh, repeat in you know 96, 97, you know those those things all come back in visions of these players that have all contributed, and I think that's important
2: you know we uh, we talk about with responsible coaches and responsible sports of of having two goals you know obviously winning on the scoreboard, but then also life lessons, developing people as people. Um, and, you know, really sports, professional sports is about the scoreboard. But it seems like you really do help your players develop as, as people. And, you know, you're famously known for giving out books to, to players. Can you talk a little bit about how you, um, how you treat your players as people and help them develop their characteristics as successful people?
1: Um, well, I've always felt that the role of a coach is doesn't you know, start or stop at the basketball floor bench or the athletic field, that he's just an extension of an education that's going on. And this process of educating is extremely important, I think, um, especially in the NBA when we've had so many players that skip college and continue um, their athletic careers uh, in the NBA, at an early age of now, they've moved it up to 19 as being the youngest you can come in at two years after your class graduates from high school. So we have a lot of 19 or 20 year old people that are um, really inexperienced, uh, you know, and and have no life skills. Uh, Andrew Bynum, who's now been with us five years, is just would have been in the first year, rookie year of his NBA season. He's the last of the players that could lead the NBA and come to the NBA after high school, and he came to the NBA at age 17, turned 18 a day before the season started. Uh, So Andrew um, was one of the players that I I think is a, a really good example. I find him reading most often before a ball game, um you know or on a plane and he's reading books of value books that i think um um mean something or or have something to say and i think a lot of that um, i don't take credit for because i think it has to be self motivated but i think um by and large um you know i warned him and told him that this is going to be the process that he'd have to be part of if he came to be part of our team when he was a high school senior, and he was looking to come to the NBA. That you know, I expected him to continue his education, and he has. But those life skills are, you know, go on beyond that. I mean, um, some of it's just about getting a license and uh, knowing how to feed yourself, and you know, um, you know take care of the daily skills. Um, some of these players are so young. We have players that are, you know. Of, you know foreign you know uh, birth uh, three or four of our players are foreign birth usually on every team in the n b a now and uh, you know we have to you know continually look at their um acceptance into our culture our society, and also you know getting them through into all the processing that goes into working in a foreign country, living in a you know different language and so forth um I'm very happy that the continuing education part um, seems to have taken a root uh, and and seems to have taken hold, that the players look forward to getting books, um, a lot of them about what's going to be chosen for them. Um, And I make no um, requirements upon the book, although I told Shaq at one time and his team that I wanted a book report, in which Shaq gave me a three-page book report. Um, I think it was Steppenwolf was the book I gave him by Herman Hess. But, uh, you know, that's the type of thing that uh, Shaq would do and, and be very funny about it and, and very uh, uh, humorous in his attempt to, you know, kind of placate me after being thrown out of a ball game. And having to sit in the locker room on a final game of a road trip uh to write out a three page book report
2: La- last uh last winter you did an event for positive coaching alliance in the the bay area and you you talked about how you approach timeouts with your players about them um, you know h- how you interact with your your coaching staff and letting them get to a safe place could you Could you talk about that because I think it was so interesting and i think a wider audience would be interested in that.
1: Well, we we have timeouts that are regulated in our game, obviously. Um, there's a lot that can go into a timeout, depending on what the referees have to do some technical things on the floor. But for the most part, um, they're like 110 seconds, um, not quite two minutes. And then when we get to... Um, the final part of the game they break down to shorter times, uh, where they get to be seventy seconds. However, during televised games, and actually televised games, to in lieu of, you know, the bigger commercial appeal, those timeouts take even a longer period of time where they can be as much as two and a half minutes long. So we have really quite long timeouts and we have a lot of noise, tremendous amount of noise that goes into the buildings through PA systems, um and a lot of teams have eventful you know, timeout activities that are going on in the floor. So in lieu of sitting or standing or kneeling in front of the players and trying to yell above the din of these uh, PA systems, I tell the players that these first 30 seconds uh, or 40, depending upon the length of the timeout, whether it's a nationally televised game or just a local game, Um, I want you to spend it with your teammates, and I'll spend it with my coaching staff. And in this period of time, I want you to take a towel, water, do what you have to do, and then go to your spot. We have a spot we call a root spot, where you go to a spot where you feel connected. Um, For example, I will use Shaq again. I asked him where he felt most connected and most at peace and harmony with himself. And he sat on a rocking chair in my grandmother's lap. Now, that's a hard thing to even imagine. <laughs> Coming big enough and Shaq small enough to hold him on his lap. But anyway, anyway uh, I said, well, that's a place that you go to when you come in a timeout to get rest, to recuperate, to rejuvenate yourself, to go back on the floor, and also to get in, in uh, connection, uh, connected with yourself. And when I come back into the huddle after spending these periods of time with my staff, I'm going to ask you guys to stand up and meet me, and then we'll talk about what we're going to do when we go back on the floor. I have three things I usually give them on offense and defense. Sometimes it's only two. And uh, you know maybe there aren't enough points on either side of the offense or defense to make you know three or two out, and I'll just have a couple of points. But usually I have bullet points that I give them. And then we have a uh, usually an activity or two, sometimes as many as three activities that will come along consecutively. So I want you to be able to focus when we come into these things, and we're only going to be together for 25 to 30 seconds. At one time, um, there was a coach that was part of our organization, um, the National Basketball Coaches Association, who gave a talk to the coaches about how many times we meet with players during the course of the season. And I think he had it up to like 7,000 to 8,000 meetings we have with players, including timeouts and in games, you know, halftime and pregame locker rooms, etc., and all those type of things. But the, the amount of times that we have to speak in front of players is a wearing effect on players. They get numb. And so to make each action relevant and important to them I try to limit how much I have to speak personally so what I have to say is important and it, it has some weight
2: yeah I really like that I, I read somewhere that uh, you know thinking about kids the average teenager gets corrected like 185 times a day uh, at a certain point you just kind of t- uh, tone everybody out who's who's trying to give you another correction Not a doubt so let's talk about the Lakers and the Celtics rivalry. That was a you know a big a big deal in the past, and now it, it's become again. And um, you know, we talk about respectful rivalries. And um, how do you po- approach the big rivalries like the you know when the Lakers and the Celtics meet in the NBA final? And how do you prepare your players for those big games?
1: Well, we like to embrace it. We like to say there's there's nothing like embracing. Um, a great challenge and you know usually a rivalry brings the greatest challenges along because it takes the greatest amount of team effort and individual effort to to come to terms or win or or lose um but what we want is we want to have the best possible um effort that we can give um We don't talk about it in terms of revenge, and, you know, uh, know, I think some of the players got to a term called payback. Um, There was an event at the end of a 2008 series where the Celtics, who had been leading us by about 30 points the whole, you know, second half, finally couldn't wait any longer. There was like two-minute timeout left in the game poured um, Gatorade all over their coach and it went onto the floor and to clean it up took about an extra three or four minutes and I know my players felt very um, they felt disgust for that activity they felt it was like rubbing our face in it so I, I talked to them about that and trying to get them into a position where it's not about you know revenge we could talk about payback that's not revenge per, per se but we have to go there and give them the most respect we have as a team because they've they beat us before. They deserve it, and they've, they've fought into a position where they've come out of a, a fourth-place finish in their conference to get to the finals as it is, and they had to play extremely well to do so. And so we have to understand how good a opponent this is. So that's how we approach it.
2: You know, I, um, I, I believe you were asked last year, uh, uh, by a reporter uh, comparing the current Lakers-Celtics rivalry with the ones in the past. And he said something like, you know, you know, it seemed like there was more hatred, more of an edge before. Um, and you you, uh, you responded uh, about both you and Doc Rivers being involved with Positive Coaching Alliance. Do you want to say anything about that?
1: I, I can't remember exactly what I said, but, you know, both of us are, de- are dealing with the fact that, you know, we want um, – our teams to give great effort. We want our teams to play the best possible games they can play. And when you do that you elevate each other's play above and you, you make a great um a great game out of it. I, I can remember once, you know, um at a pregame actually going to Pat Riley and telling him, let's make this the greatest game people have ever watched. Let's you know let's have this be a great contest. Um, those are the type of things, I think, that uh, stand out in people's minds. And I really think a lot of our young players in this day and age have that have that feeling about it. They uh, are using these type of feelings and motivation rather than um, maybe you could call it the hatred um, motivation that I'm going to get back at this guy because I have revenge or hatred on my mind.
2: Um. Anyway, I, I appreciated uh, what you said uh about you know you and doc both being involved with positive coaching alliance that that may have helped elevate the game uh, let's talk a little bit about youth sports um what uh, thinking about uh coaches of high school or youth teams um any you know in thinking about your experience bringing disparate uh, personalities together, any underlying principles that you'd like to see. Uh, youth coaches use when they build their teams. Well, you know,
1: I, I think that you know what what you're looking for is, is a common denominator that brings people together in in a community. And I I think that uh, you know this last week I, I read a comment by um, a CEO who, who said that you know his business. Was failing. He was. It was hard. He didn't say it was failing. It was hard, and he went back to coaching, and he coached some wrestlers because wrestling was a sport, and he realized that if people weren't enthusiastic about the the activity, the competition in sport, that. He would rather have less talent and more enthusiasm because the people that really wanted to be there and were passionate about being there were going to succeed better than the ones that were just there uh, without giving their whole heart and whole self. And I I think that's really the key. You can have people that are talented or people that are are, um, maybe more skilled, but if they can't give all of themselves into the activity... You'd rather not have them there. It's the ones that want to do it all together that really are going to make this activity the best. And I think that's how, you know, coaches have to build a team. I was very impressed with that, the the um, statement by this um, CEO. So I mean, that's that's how that's how you build a team. Um, you build a team from the the aspect of we want to do this together and we want to have the best possible time uh, building this group of guys into a community or girls in the community that can compete um, for the fun of it because that's when it gets to be a lot of fun.
2: Um, thinking You meant, talked about Andrew Bynum coming into the NBA at 17. Um, thinking about the coaches who coach the kids who are going to make it to the NBA at you know, 14, 15, mm-hmm. 16 years old, um, any thoughts about what those those coaches who are coaching the the very elite ballplayers, uh, what they could do to help better, uh, better develop a, an entire person who walks into the NBA his NBA camp, you know maybe as a eighteen nineteen twenty year old.
1: Well, what I what I like about um, what I see happening in our sport. Let's just well just take my sport for example, and we'll make specific in the more general is that I see a lot of European players coming into basketball and what I have seen in these European players is that there's a development of the whole player um, rather than saying okay you're a big kid you're you know the biggest kid on the team or you're going to be the biggest kid on the team or you are um, you're just going to play with your back to the basket we don't want you to dribble the ball and you're going to set picks and rebound, or you're going to catch the ball and shoot a hook shot or a turnaround jump shot, and then you're going to run the court down the middle and protect our court at the other end of the floor on defense. I see the European players have, you know, these guys are 6'10", to 7'2", or whatever, um, playing on the outside, shooting the ball like guards, dribbling the ball up the court, and playing the game, playing the whole game. And it's what's made... European players capable of making this move to the n b a with such um ease and it 's a real surprise and that 's because they're playing the whole game and I think that that's um one of the factors I think that really um, is a, is becoming a lesson for us in America is that we we are you know we get like specific we say we have uh you're good in soccer you should only play soccer well when I was a kid I thought that if you're good in sports you played all the sports as many as you could play in the seasons that were available because every sport has a characteristic that's enjoyable I enjoyed playing football you're kind of a cog in a machine and you had to do your job and everybody had to come off the ball on the snap count and and you had to know your blocking assignment and you know there are a variety of things that are I think very effective in that sport, it was great. Um, baseball is a very individualist sport, but it, there's also a real team atmosphere around, you know, a double play or, you know, a relay throw from the outfield, to home plate, or the variety of things that, you know, that you have to perform as functions as a baseball player. Basketball is a probably one of the best team sports. Soccer is another team sport, but it has, you know, a lot of athletic, uh, you know, energy and effort that go into it. Uh, a lot of um, skill about, uh, you know, footwork, passing, angles, and the variety of things. So I, you know, I think there's so many things that are available to coaches to keep expanding um, young players that it's very important to understand that. Uh, that You know, we don't get, like, um, I want to possess this player or I want to... Um, you know, enhance my own career by making this player, you know, the best player he is in this position. I think that, you know, I keep encouraging young players that I see to continue to play the sports that they like, to play football and basketball, and um, or baseball and basketball, or whatever combination of sports they like, because they're, you know, to do so keeps your, you know, team involvement and in your development as a team player, um, and your ability to. Um, to find winning ways um, at the best possible enhancement as you go along and, and you grow.
2: Uh, I really like that. You know, you think about somebody like S- Steve Nash, who, who, you know, could have could have been directed into soccer, uh, and he talks about how soccer helped him. Yeah, his brother was a real good soccer player, and soccer is one of his loves. But he got he just kept playing. You know, he kept playing the sport. Uh, so one, one coach said to me um, when he was talking about playing different sports, and he said the main thing is to learn how to compete. And you mentioned you know, the difference between football, soccer, basketball, baseball. But in every game there's an element of competition and figuring out, okay, what do I have to do in this particular game to help my team win? And that that mentality of a competitor can be developed across sports.
1: Oh, without a doubt. I, I think it's a, a real valuable thing to learn, a real valuable lesson for for players to learn is you know how to compete in a variety of different sports and I think that's the gamesmanship that you learn and I think that's a, in a good term the gamesmanship
2: So um, thinking about your kids who, who competed um, did any of their coaches stand out to you either uh, in a good way or a bad way
1: You know I, I think that uh, more than not um, I would say that it was there was some negative um, coaching in, in my kid's life, and it's unfortunate to say that, but it's, it's the truth that um, I tried not to be involved because of the high profile that I have as a coach in, directly in my kid's sports life. I thought that it was intrusive of me to try and you know be too close to the team. I liked to go and watch as often as I could because I enjoyed watching. My children compete, but um, you know, I, I felt that there was just one of the reasons I I'm believe strongly in positive coaching alliance is because I saw a lot of um, mishandling, not mishandling, misplaced direction, is what I should say, with some coaches that were in the junior high and high school level uh, that my my children uh, participated in, in in high school. And in junior high um there were some coaches I thought they were good there's no doubt they, they were technically very good and perhaps the uh the best coach that I can mention was a um a, outside of the school sports uh in a community sports i think it was called um bitty ball or um it's small fry that's the name of the organization for for players that are yet to be over five foot six i think they have to be five six and under uh and 12 years and and younger my my boys were short and were good athletes and played on this um on this uh, team and the team had a tremendous amount of appeal the reason they they loved their coach and they loved the um the atmosphere was the discipline that they learned, and it was very unusual. It's a very affluent area, and an a, area in which children were not disciplined very much. But yet, this coach preached a tremendous amount of discipline. For example, they had to wear beanies all the time during the winter time. Um, you know, they had to be uh, dressed a certain way. Um, there was a certain amount of characteristics that they had to carry on the court that uh, they had never been. You know. Um, Associated with this kind of discipline before coming from the affluence that they had in you know, the suburb of northern Chicago. And I think that's one of the reasons why these kids really enjoyed uh, playing um, basketball for this coach. And they, they competed very well.
2: You know, I, I had the, the opportunity to see your son, Charles, uh, compete in some of our basketball tournaments, and he, uh, he was a good competitor. He, play, he played a mean game of basketball. You enjoy it. So, last question: um, We uh, in our workshops with with high school and youth coaches, we ask them to think about how they'd like to be remembered by their players and the players' families. You know, sometimes we talk about legacy. Um, wh- how 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 would you like to be remembered when your coaching career comes to an end? Well, I you know I, I think
1: perhaps more than anything else i'd like to think of that as as you know making the game enjoyable making it fun to play the game um is something that seems to you know come to me right away uh there's going to be a lot of there's really a lot of good coaches there are a lot of guys that you know know how to get between the the lines and and do really good things um About building a community, I think, is probably the one thing that I value more than anything else as a coach. I I think that uh, when the players bond and play together as a unit, they become almost unbeatable in in many ways. And I think that's the key that that makes the difference between um, the championships. But more than anything else, it's about the fact that they want to be there that makes the championships, that they, they enjoy being there and doing it. I I've, was on some teams that could hardly wait for the season to end. Um, so I know what that's like, um, where players have had enough of each other, enough of losing, and the season's gone on too long, and they can hardly wait to go home. And I've been on teams with, uh, you know, when it's completely the other way, that they can hardly wait for themselves to get back together again so that they can go out and play. So there's a total different thing. And I like that other
2: aspect of players that can hardly wait to get back together so that they can go enjoy playing together. I just want to thank you for all the support you've given us over these many years. And thanks for taking the time to talk to us today.
1: Well, it's my pleasure, Jim. Thank you very much.
0: To learn more about Responsible Sports, including downloading valuable tools on how to help encourage youth athletes and build great teams, visit ResponsibleSports.com. You'll find helpful, responsible sport parenting and responsible coaching guides, downloadable tools and worksheets, and advice from leading youth sports experts. Music for this podcast has been generously provided by APM Music.